You're listening to the Driven by Design Awards Wrap. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me this week is Harriet Wakelin. G'day, Harriet. Hi, Mark. Now, Harriet, your LinkedIn profile tells me that you're the Director of Human-Centred Design at IAG. What's an IAG? IAG is Insurance Australia Group. So we are, I think, the largest insurance group in Australia. And, um, and we're quite unusual in that we've made a fairly major investment in design as a means of addressing some of the challenges insurance is facing. So why does an insurance organisation need to be human-centred? What's, what's going on there? Don't you just have products that you throw out at people and they say, I've got a risk and they take that up? You, traditionally, yes. I think um, if, if we look at some of the, the, the challenges facing the world um, today, the idea of risk is far, far greater. We're seeing a gig economy. We're seeing um, reduced uh, tenure in work. We're seeing climate change. We're seeing changing nature of vehicles. What used to be a vehicle that you used for your family to drive you to places might also now be creating income for you. Um, it might also be being rented out as a car next door. And our assets are changing in their nature and the risks that they face are greater. Okay, so every time I make a decision to change the way that I drive to work or I'm there going in ride sharing or I'm actually using a share car, that's going to create different types of risks and therefore you've got to have responsive products, frameworks of how those products fit together, your channel that's actually distributing the products, all of that has to evolve. Yeah, and, and what used to be a product that you bought and attached to a risk has changed. And so I think IAG about two to three years ago made a serious commitment to use human-centered design to take a customer-centric approach to the way that they designed products. This has been part of a, a big transformation in both the way that we look at innovation, the way that we look at business as usual, and in the way that we transform our products and services for this changing world. So, so our vision is to create a safer Australia. Now, am I right that you're, you're working on what's like a phase two of the human-centered design program at IAG? Phase one was the mass migration of executives and staff through an IDEO education process? Yeah, we, we made a decision that we wanted to build awareness. It was a, a conscious decision to build what was called at the time a movement, that we wanted to build awareness of what design was. We wanted to put as many people as we could through a process where they understood some of the basic tenets and tools of design. And if you look at it, um, a good metaphor is one of sort of cooking and chefing. We gave people recipe books, we gave them some tools, and we said, off you go, go make things. That has been very successful. 950 plus people have been through these boot camps. But what we have seen is people have struggled to apply those skills and to turn them into actual real tangible business and commercial outcomes. And, th and, that, and that's fair because... If I went and took 950, you know, uh, say, uh, fit, active people and told them to go play basketball, I'd find there'd be a bunch of them that were actually more understanding of how to appreciate basketball. There'd be some who had shown mid-level skills and there'd be some standout people who were natural basketball players that we didn't know about. And that's probably been the same in the business that you've got. And that was stage two. We said, we said design is, is, is what we call praxis. It's a mixture of practice and theory. The practice is designed to evolve the theory, the theory, the practice. And we said that not everybody, in the same way that I would probably make a lousy CFO, not everybody can make a designer. 
And rather than try to turn everybody into designers, we said, what were the core skills that came from design that would help the business think differently about its products? What we wanted to do was to activate the knowledge of the business in new ways. So we said, if we teach people to define really strong objectives, if we teach people investigation and validation skills built on customer principles, drawn from design, then what we do is we don't create designers, but we create really strongly framed products so and services. D- so I'll just you know, draw back there a little bit because a lot of the people who will be listening to the podcast aren't familiar with some of that language. Mm. So so when you say investigation, does that mean that you get you know Columbo out? What, what, what does that mean? What does an investigation well, I think like? stage one of design, and, and, and I think designers are guilty of this, was the idea that you could just go talk to customers. Go out there, talk to your customers, ask them what they want, go find out what they need. And, and Lean Startup fed this, this culture a little bit as well. It was, it was as if to, we could say, by going out and talking to customers, we would somehow identify this unicorn magic that would help us build really targeted products and services. And what we're saying is that the skill of customer investigation is one that has rigor. It's not defined and it's not restricted to design, but design uses an element of that. And that to build an unbiased interview, to build and to understand and to investigate a customer need based on a business objective requires a particular skill and a particular practice and a particular rigour. And we've seen uh, some behaviours that have come out around things like lean startup, which even you mentioned there was the, you know, maybe it turns into a unicorn. When lean startup was written, the idea of unicorns were, they were unicorns. They were so rare that nobody really counted on them. They were flukes. To me, the whole lean startup model was actually about incubating and and using some reasonably spinning up methods to incubate for acquisition targets. And that was where the realisation came for the people who were making these startup businesses. They And in the last couple of podcasts, I've talked about the lean startup and the startup world really being like tadpoles, not frogs. Mm. And so we th- now we expect a, a startup to be a frog, but it's actually a tadpole. It's trying to work out how to how to evolve into the next thing, but in its own right, it's probably it hasn't got everything that it needs. So if you've got people who believe that they can go use methods which are how to graduate from being a tadpole to a frog, it's probably not the way you run a mature business and actually do things. I think if you frame the wrong problem, it doesn't matter how great your lean startup is, you're still creating an engineered solution for a problem that's the wrong problem. And so what we're saying is rather than build, rather than lean startup solving everything or rather than agile solving everything, there is a real skill to framing the right problem and that framing the right problem requires rigor. And when I talked about investigation and validation, find that problem, that problem probably sits at the intersection of disciplines. And when you find and you frame that problem, then Lean Startup, Agile, and all of those other methodologies will help you rapidly deliver something to market. Exactly. So our theme for the podcast this week is the um, is about the courage to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And from what you've described there is that you've now got this environment where you've got people who have expert skills, mm-hmm. and those expert skills might be in running the business, and then they understand what's actually going to be the mid and long term. And then you're going to other experts in a collaboration who can actually turn around and say, well, you've given me this challenge, which is well-framed. Now can you go out and work out how to make the best human-centered product to go deliver that? We know what our strategy is, but our strategy isn't being delivered off a couple of junk data points that have come out of somebody asking 10 people 
a question. And that that was a say a flaw mm. in that stage one of human yes. centered design because it actually wasn't human centered design. It was actually a request response process. And there was little synthesis in there and there was little strategy and there was little culture. So it's great to hear that you guys are actually moving into that second stage, getting up to speed and leveraging that great investment that was put in place before. And I think that you, you touched on courage and it actually takes great courage to challenge what is currently the accepted definition of design. And to say that just going out and talking to customers and creating and ideating by itself will create transformative products and commercially focused objectives is not a popular way of thinking. Yep. So we're going to go back a little bit because I know some of the other roles that you've had and we were talking a bit before about how come we've seen in the last you know four or five years Twitter turn around and that they vacuumed up 40 of like the dream team of user experience designers in out of the Silicon Valley Within two years, all of them had left. You went into an organisation where you put together a dream team and then within a couple of years, the majority of those people, if not all of them, have left. And that to me says that there's a cultural issue that's going on. And when we were talking before, you mentioned that one of the things was that the teams had come in and that they expected to do design at the organisation rather than for the organisation. And I think that's one of the differences you're now marching forward with is how do we go use design principles, design methodologies for the organisation, not just do a project at them, get the sign off and then move on to the next thing. Let's build platforms which grow, but are actually serving that strategy and the culture. Yeah, design, uh, to me, design, good design reduces risk and good design is about the combination recombination of knowledge in new ways to create original concepts. And design is a service. I think we spent a little bit too long in the idea that design was about invention. And so the view that, that we've started to shift has been saying, if you were to design a chair, you would need to understand the materials that made that chair. If you're going to design in a business, then you have an obligation to understand the materials that make that business. And if you're going to redesign the systems and the utility models of a business and enable it to design new products and services, then as a designer, you have an obligation to start to understand the tools, the frames, the materials and the substances that make that. Because you can't say those are wrong if you don't understand how those materials work. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a name for, for the scenario where people have decided to go through rapid adoption of whether it's IDEO or Frog or somebody else who's actually doing uh, that mass implementation of new methodologies. And then people demand immediate results. And the designers are probably finding out that it's actually easier and a faster path to success and potentially an incentive reward to actually just go give somebody the answer thereafter and not use the full methodology. And then we wind up in a vicious circle where the reward behaviours are actually out of sync with the underlying way that design should be done. So I'm really pleased to hear that you're working on how you're doing design for the organisation in its situation and for its needs. And I think it's what you ask people to do. You don't ask a, a room full of EGMs and GMs to ideate because they're not very good at it. Um, you ask a, a group of EGMs and GMs, you ask a group of experts to look at a scenario, 
to explain and to make tangible that scenario and to ask them what would have to change in their world in order for that to be true. And that's a very different approach. Early days of design tried to bring anybody into a room and say, we're going to go through a process of ideation, we're going to invent new things, we're going to prototype and we're going to make. Why would we do that? When actually what we have is somebody who might be an expert auditor. If I can create a tangible scenario based on the on the knowledge that is new, and I can present that in a tangible way to that auditor, that auditor can then make decisions based on their knowledge, activate yeah. their knowledge in new ways, and they can truly make decisions that move us forward. And we, we've come a long way, but that's all about that collaboration, mm. respecting the value that the different parties go bring, knowing when to go and implement that, that strong point, and that's a great team thing. I often say to somebody, you know, it's like me saying, um, well, I've got a bank account. I don't usually go overdrawn. I've got, you know, some money in it. Um, I've got a reasonable knowledge of, uh, of, of how money works on a basic level. So what's to go wrong? Fail fast. Let me be CFO. <laughs> Give me a go at corporate plan. I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Fail fast. I'll do corporate plan. I've got, I'll, I'll apply the little bit of knowledge I've got. You know, we'll have a few failures. We might lose a bit of cash. That's fine. We've matured beyond that. Of course, no one's going to give me the corporate plan to do. So, and what's, what's interesting is when we go get those self-help management books, they last on shelves for probably a decade longer than they should. Yeah. The fail fast, which was, you know, everyone says, oh, Zuckerberg had this fail fast. He dropped that within the first couple of years. And one of the big reasons why he dropped it was that he had bounced releases in the marketplace. He decided we'll just will tell you the way it changes and the community said him, we're telling you to change it back. And and then that's when he began to understand, actually, I'm a servant here to my users, not the driver of my users. And that and there's that collaboration between the provider of the service and the marketplace. And they both have to collaborate and, and grow together. And fail fast is great. If you're an expert in your field and you have a basic knowledge of the of the data that builds your field, then the hypotheses that you build and the experiments you build will be based on rigor. I would no more go out and build an experiment on electricity than I would do go out and build a new corporate plan because I don't have that expert knowledge. And so that I think we're moving away from that, that period of, of design and we're saying actually let's apply real rigor, let's apply real effort and let's emerge and evolve things into new ways. Yeah, I remember back to reading Reimagined by Tom Peters and he was referring to the decades ahead as being the feminine decades. But I don't think he was meaning feminine as it was only going to be females. I think there's this nurturing feminine persona, which is so much more important for us to embrace, rather than the masculine, which is the fail fast, experiment, do, achieve. And, and we're seeing that changing. You've got to actually have empathy. You've got to be in an ecosystem. You have to collaborate. You don't do that. You're not, you're not a current person or a current organisation. But we're going to get into some projects. Yep. We'll talk forever about this, I'm sure. But um, let's get into our first project here, Receiver, the smart mailbox from the team at Receiver. It's in the Sydney Design Awards. Yep. Now, um, when I first saw this project, I looked at it and I thought, what's so special about it? Because it looks like a metal box. But anything that's actually telling you that it's special and it looks pretty plain must have some good insides. What I've, what I've enjoyed about seeing this receiver project is that they're bringing the internet of things, the self-empowerment that comes when you're looking at the way that couriers drop their parcels, and they've put it into a, a, a fantastic looking package. 
They've got some good electronics behind it, which is their Internet of Things base. And now they're building a platform, which is how do you go make the delivery cycle work for the customers, not just work for the courier companies. Mm. And one of the one of the big problems in the in delivering parcels is that it's clogging our streets. And part of the reason it's clogging our streets is chatter. And the chatter is delivery driver comes once, you're not home, they put a card. They come back the next day. So you've got three attempts. And we know any network system that's designed for three attempts to deliver the same message is a really bad network. So I think the team here at Receiver are doing a great, a great job at introducing another delivery modality, which is actually where it suits me, not one of those you know, mass delivery points that I don't ever seem to go to. Or um, problem we have at work, which is please don't get your parcels delivered to work because um, we, our mailbox can't, can't cope. Exactly. So great project here yep. from the team at Receiver. Let's go into our next one here. Um, you're probably a frequent traveller like I am. <laughs> we all know the TripAdvisor brand very well. Um, TripAdvisor and Unispace have been involved with this project here. And this is another one of these workspaces where it's a high productivity workspace. We keep seeing that and it seems to be there's two reasons why people get these activity-based working environments. One is it's either fashionable and they're trying to just use it as a hook to get people in. The other one is there's productivity gains. How's it work around IAG? Where are you up to with the activity-based working? Well, we're currently in a fairly old-fashioned environment. So I've been in a flexi working environment for eight years prior to going to IAG. And I have a desk for the first time in, uh, in eight years. I have to say it's not highly successful. Um, I managed to get down to an iPad <laughs> and about three pairs of shoes. I now have an entire desk full of junk. We are, however, building a new building which will have entirely activity-based working. I'm personally a huge fan of activity-based working, provided enough quiet space is built in. Um, what I have found from activity-based working is that it can be so collaborative that it is almost impossible to get work done and you retreat home. Yeah, and, and so what, that's a really interesting thing about that idea of quiet spaces. For activity-based working to, to really perform, it has to go to with the intelligence of the building as well. And I know the team at Microsoft have been working on doing things like scraping people's outlook to work out what's going to be the workload requirements, working out how to cluster people together. If you've been emailing somebody else when you turn up in the morning, that you'll be diverted to some, some desk, which are the people that, are, that you've been emailing in the last week. And if they've got that right, they can even decide it's Wednesday before a holiday, let's turn off the heating and, and ventilation on one entire floor because we know that the people aren't going to be present. So there's all of these layers that come in for activity-based working, but it has to do with how smart we are about it rather than just thinking because it's there, it's going to work. So I think there's that collaboration with... What do we want it to go do for us, which is the need? It's actually what's the response been? And then how have we listened to go and actually make sure that we're tweaking it all the way along? And I know we saw a project in the Sydney Design Awards that was done for Atlassian. And what was interesting about that was it was like there were 15 different components that made up this activity-based working environment. And I'm sure the way that Atlassian work, which is that they just tweak and change one of those environments at a time, that they can keep optimising it based on data that they're getting back, on feedback that's coming from the team. I think that's really important to make sure that activity-based working absolutely rocks. And I think, yeah, for, for me, the biggest thing with activity-based working is how do you have non-activity-based working? Because you cannot be working all the time. There is a real 
deep need to build quiet space, silent space and reflective space into workspaces. And what I do find about activity-based working is offices often don't do that. And, uh, and so in our office that we turn around and that we've actually got different spaces that we choose to work based on the different sorts of tasks. Mm. And a couple of those spaces are just cafes. So if I want to go have a, a good conversation with, uh, with my business partner and, and just chew the fat, I'd rather be doing it in a cafe than some formal, formal room. And I'm sure there's some cafes we don't go back to because we didn't like the answer that we got out of the conversation. <laughs> but, but then it, it opens up the palette. And then there's other spaces that we want to be when we're working, we're processing the number of nominations that are coming in or designing new programs. And, and that's just the important thing. We need to have those different environments. and We need to signal what mode are we in because sometimes it's a creation mode, sometimes it's a processing mode, Sometimes it's a collaborative uh, brainstorming mode. And I find that being in different environments helps with yeah. that. At the University of London, there used to be a, a favourite on the seventh floor of the library um, in the School of East European Studies. There was a small section of the library which had desks built into the eaves. And the desk was actually inside an attic window behind a bookshelf. And it was like a secret spot. And it was one of the most productive places in the entire building. No one disturbed you, no one knew you were there. It was silent, you could look out of the window and, and you could get eight hours work done there without even realising the time had passed. I've just come back from a country place that I've got because I wanted to have three days where I just got through a whole heap of work and was undisturbed. Mm. And we all do that. We all want to find those places. But So now we're going to head off to a large yep. shopping mall, shopping centre here. It's uh, for Optus, which is uh, yep. the second uh, tier carrier here in Australia. And uh, the statement that they've made is that it's their store for forward-thinking telco in a fashion capital. So here they are in a, in a fashion-based shopping mall. They're trying to make sure that people aren't just thinking that they're maybe a pedestrian telco. They want to feel that they're actually high fashion, high finish. So this is their bling, their flagship store that they've got here. How important do you think that is in when you're making decisions? I know I'm, I'm not particularly responsive to bling when it comes to retail experiences, but I see the number of flagship stores that are out there. It must be important. I think I might be a bit peculiar in this one. My, my, uh, my biggest bugbear around things like this is that when you go into an Optus or a, a service provider, one of the things you do is wait. And one of the things that stresses me out the most is that someone else will forget that I've been waiting that long and get served first. So there is no way to linger, obviously. I, I would actually like something like a small flag that I could sort of have saying I'm waiting. And I know they tried tickets and I know they tried other things. One of the things I think Apple does so well is that they make it very clear that you have been both recognised and that you can then linger and wait. I think nice to have bling, but what about the lingering and the waiting because it's yeah. inevitable. And, and I actually received a follow-up call from a service call I had at Samsung. And I just said, oh, look, you haven't got the experience design right. You haven't thought about my needs. And you actually, because you didn't pass some knowledge along your chain, you actually went and lost all of the data off my phone. Mm. And then there was an incredulous person who was the guru who knew how to restore my data backup, said, oh, you use the Google backup, not the Samsung one, and made me feel like I was an imbecile. And that to me is all part of that service design chain, which is 
have a think about the experience that people are going to have in your environment. Because to me, the moment of truth wasn't how engaging it was. It was how I felt yeah. I'd been let down and a waste of time. I'd, so I'd like a great big armchair. I'd forget sitting on one of these concrete things with screens. If you're going to make me wait, give me a big armchair. Yeah, or and one of the honest things that I see that Apple do is that they actually tell you that you're booked in for an appointment and you get priority because you booked in for an appointment. If you just turn up and you want you know, on-demand, off-the-street service, you probably got to wait. But they have a remedy. You can book in and you can go have high-attention, high-efficiency services there. But that's not what we've got here. What we've got with Optus is they've got a retail store here where they're trying to let me go browse and explore and they want me to engage with as many products to go make my right product decision. When I go look at the environment, I'm not sure that it's a data-driven environment here. And that's probably what I need to go make my decision. But as we've both said, we're not necessarily the typical um, mm. consumer. And that probably means that they've done their research for their typical consumers. And I remember a story about Gmail and a product called Inbox from, from <laughs> yes. Google. Do you know, yes. do you know yes. this story? So when, when Google went and made Inbox, it was designed for the customers that get five emails a day. And so the interface was all about... You get five emails a day, we'll make it simple for you. The people that they asked for release sign-off were the Google experts, the Gmail hackers, the, you know, done, they've got every plugin you could imagine. And they said, but it won't work when I get 200 emails a day. I said, well, it's not actually for you. They said, well, no, we can't release something that wouldn't work for me. And so that's one of those things about being pragmatic is maybe this project isn't for you. Mm. Maybe it's actually for somebody else. And so I go look at the Optus store here and I say, they're quite successful with this store yeah. and therefore it's got to be actually servicing the need of their customers because if it doesn't work, the dollars don't come across the, the cash register and therefore they're not meeting their target. So I think it's obviously a great design here that's yeah. been done by the team here at Greater Group, but um, maybe they also need to design some stores for people like you and me. Oh, yeah, and I, I think we've become increasingly sophisticated in our, in our mobile use and so, yeah, who knows. So I'm getting a little bit hungry here. Let's go across here to the Hurricane Grill. <laughs> the Hurricane Grill here is a beautiful, beautiful food services venue. Have you ever been there? No, but I like the look of it. Well, I think it's actually, what you have to do is you have to go to the San Bento Railway Station. So you can whack that into Google to work out where <laughs> this is and have a, have a look at it. But um, what I like about this is the team behind it, uh, we've seen them a lot in the awards, Lucetti Grill and that they've done another transformation of a space to go make it engaging, to make sure that it's interesting. One thing you picked up before was that potentially it's a high ambient noise, but sometimes cafes need to be high ambient noise so that we actually feel like we're not alone. Mm. And, and so you've got that balance between using the bright surfaces for somewhere which is on the go casual. If I was having a, a meal and it was the longest day, I might want it to be more tranquil. But what I do notice is that a lot of these cafes will have a quieter zone and also the high ambient noise mm -hmm. because that's part of the buzz of being in a cafe. I, I think it's, it's, it's a gorgeous example. Yeah, it looks of, it's very of, sexy with all of those cafes. Yeah, absolutely there. Okay, now government services, um, sometimes they, they look pretty plain and they look pretty boring, but I think if you're at the Energy and Water Ombudsman, New South Wales, if you're going to them, you're already a bit frustrated because nobody rings up an ombudsman for a good time. Mm. 
It's not the place that you go when you're feeling resilient. It probably means you're fuming and that you need to get resolution very, very quickly. So I like the work that's been done here by the team at Butterfly for them. They've been able to work out through the information architecture, through, uh, through the clear navigation that's in the site, how do they make sure they get people to resolution as fast as they can? Because when you're fuming, you don't want to have to go through some unnecessary menu levels or try to read information that doesn't make sense for you. No, I agree. And having used Ombudsman, I, I, I think it's important to be able to get and vent once and get that passed on easily. Yeah. So and, yeah, it's, and that, it's a good and, and you've nailed it. The word there is vent. You're going to the Ombudsman of saying, I've, I've got past the acceptable point, blur, you vented, you hope the Ombudsman is going to be able to go do something for you. So another great project there, but um, let's head off here and uh, go into a bit of property marketing. Have you bought a place recently? I have, and I have got a lot of um, glossy brochures um, with probably fairly similar looking bathrooms, kitchens, yoga studios, um, waterfalls, um, small gardens and balconies. And I must admit, I did get a little tired. How did you find the marketing materials? Did they start to look a little bit the same too? Yeah, I, I, I began to not be able to distinguish. I, I began to see teaching with a bit of cynicism, I must admit. Um, I was sort of, well, yep, here we are, another nice block. Yep, there's the uh, the super white tiled bathroom or the grey option. There's the boy, boy option, girl option. There's the shiny cover. There's the beautiful paper stock. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I did get a little cynical about them. Yeah, look, I, I think this is an interesting project here because Hutch & Hutch here that's been done here by Toast Creative, they've gone in and that they've said, we're going to actually make this experience look a particular way. Yep. They've done a beautiful... It does look good. I mean, I do like black on black. Beautifully consistent job there. So if we were just looking from a craft perspective, you'd say, okay, um, we might have seen something similar to this, but this is a beautiful example of that of that work. But undoubtedly, it looks beautiful. It looks clean. It looks exciting. However, I'm not sure that I would be entirely convinced that it's that different from So this is where we have to go back and work out that we're the Gmail users, not the inbox users, okay? So the reason why somebody's investing in these sorts of marketing materials is that they've got inventory that they need to sell and property developments will have somewhere between 20, 200, at most 600 units that they're trying Mm -hmm. to go sell. So it's not actually a very big pool of inventory And so what they need to do is make sure that they're telling people, this is what you're buying into. Here's the lifestyle. This is the mode that you're going to be in when you live here. And so when I look at these materials, I see people uh, that they're packaging up and they're saying, this is suave, this is sophisticated. And that's where it'll come through, you know, the heavier cardboard stock that's used there. It's going to have, you know, very saturated blacks as this one's got, which is giving you that. It's probably a little bit more sophisticated and it's actually... Um, maybe more black hipster in there. And what they're trying to go do is project to people that this is the type of coolness factor that you're going to have with this property. So I think if we look at that strategically, that I've got to say, you're actually doing the right thing in projecting. This is the placemaking experience that we're doing here. Whether it's actually what I need Probably not, but then that's also efficiency in the sales mm-hmm. cycle because they flagged me quite early on, this may not be for you. So I think it's a beautiful project that's been done here by, yeah, the, uh, by the team at Toast. And normally I have figures about how fast the inventory sold, 
because when we see projects like that, they're not in the awards if they didn't move the inventory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So our next project here is the garden, and the garden is actually at the West Ashfields Leagues Club, and it was done by Sonnet. Now, this is an interesting project to me because Leagues Clubs generally weren't known for healthy food options. Hmm. It was probably indulgent food or comfort food that was there. Palmer. Palmer, chips. Chips, uh, chips or salad, and it wasn't a great food option there. But what's happened here at the West Ashfield Leagues Club is that they've decided that they want to turn around and they want to give healthy food options and they want to be talking about produce. And so they, they're working out how do they upgrade the service expectation, how do they upgrade the language of their customers so that together they can go on a journey which is a healthier food journey in here. I think it's a, it's a fantastic execution, not because of the... Uh, say the the graphic elements and what that's immediately going to do, but that change in customer experience and taking your customers into a place that they wouldn't take themselves naturally. Mm-hmm. It's been beautifully done. I think if you go look at it, they're telling you that green is actually something that permeates throughout all of this. And as a male, I know that green vegetables are the vegetable class that I normally don't eat. So I think if someone's reminding me to go eat green, it's telling me it's fresh and it's wonderful. And you've got to think that's a pretty important thing. My pet favourite um, fast food restaurant at the moment is Oliver's. I, I, I love the, uh, the, the, uh, the the fast food green and I, I've become an addiction addict to green beans and salt. So um, for me, it is possible to make um, healthy food sexy. And... I do think it's time. So, yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. Now, I try to put into every podcast a little fact about myself that people normally wouldn't get. When I'm travelling, I get folate needy. So after after about two weeks of being on the road, I just crave green vegetables. And it's pretty hard to find them when, when you're travelling. So I'll just be, you know, I'll be speaking to home and I'll be saying, oh, I need to go get the green vegetables. I need to get the green vegetables because it's so infrequent that you get them when, you, when you're traveling. So have you discovered Oliver's? I haven't discovered Oliver's. Oliver's is my green beans in salt in a chip packet. So I feel like I'm eating chips. Mm-hmm. There, there is an increasing ability to eat vegetables. Um, well, know. I'm going to pick you up on some of that yep. as I travel around new things. Now, Nubo is our next project Yeah, I like here. the colours on this. The okay. colours on this are good. Nubo is beautiful here. It's done by the Frost Collective. Um, what I like about, about this piece of work is that it's fun and it's meant to be it's a crash it's about early stage development life it's got a degree of sophistication in it from its typography it's a it's a space i'd feel really comfortable in dropping some kids off there i'm not sure whose kids they'd be but i'd <laughs> drop them off there um, it's actually just got this fun playful attitude to it i think what frost have been able to go help out their client nubo do here is that they're able to have been able to say, here's a different way of looking at early childhood development. It doesn't have to be naive um, graphics. It can actually be quite sophisticated and smart graphics. Beautiful project. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of um, some work that Great Ormond Street Hospital did where they played with the um, scale of furniture rather than just play with the children's playground. So, Well, we're coming to our last project here. And our last project here, it fits into the insurance world here. It's the RACQ Roadside Assist Project done by Ansible Australia. Uh-huh. Now, um, you have a little bit to do with these sorts of projects, don't you? I do indeed. And when I've mentioned this, you, you looked at me as if I'd taken you into something that had been challenging for you because 
we, we're seeing here the front end of these sorts of projects, but I'd imagine insurance products were never meant to deal with digital platforms. They were never shaped to interact with each other. There must be a whole lot of back of house mechanics, which are hell. I think there are some brilliant things being done. I think Amy in the UK, for example, um, and I'll probably be, uh, be struck down by my employer for that one. But, they but you're are talking using, Amy in the UK, yes. not in Australia. Yeah. They're using telematics, for example, so that as you have a crash, they can detect the impact, they can geolocate you, they can get an ambulance or um, other um, service to you um, ASAP. And they can um, ensure that your um, emergency contacts are notified on the spot. So within five to ten seconds of you having an accident, there is help on the way. In Australia, we're not yet there. I do have a particular interest in this one. I have a, a driver who, uh, a new driver in this household who has one week um, driving experience. Right. And I have signed up for roadside assistance, knowing that um, we will probably at some point need it. I do think that there is, a, you talked about courage at the beginning. Uh, it's time for us to use some serious courage in the service design of insurance apps. Right. So tell me a little bit more about that. Uh, I think in order, this is back to, to what are the materials a designer needs to know to design things well. If we're going to start working with telematics, if we're going to start working with smart cars, if we're going to start working with insurance needs and cars that are intelligent and smart in their own right, then there is a need for designers to understand those sorts of technologies, not be experts in them. But you can't design services that are intuitive if you don't understand the sorts of services that are there. So we have um, at IAG um, a, a vast research center working on mobility telematics and driverless cars, for example. We're working on on whether or not when, during a hail incident we can tell you where the nearest parking space is and whether we can get you undercover quickly. Those are the sorts of things that we need to be able to do. And those are not about designing products. Those are about integrating the services of driving and making them available to people in ways that make sense. We're talking more about the design of objects within architectures from which people can make meaning rather than the design of giant big products and apps. So therefore that's all about people having confidence around design, but also understanding how to collaborate mm -hmm. and having executives who have got the courage to bring in products which are actually about future need, not necessarily yesterday's need. Yeah, and the design of the interconnecting service, not the product. Harriet, it's been fantastic doing, doing the wrap with you today. I've got a little bit of thank you that I need to go do to, mm -hmm. to a few people because Driven by Design exists because of the people who contribute to the community. And we get some studios that really help bring quite a lot of work into the awards. Today, I've got to give a big shout out to the team at Frost Collective, Hoyne, Charwood Design, The Greater Group, and also Butterfly. Um, but also, I can't do this without you. So thank you for giving me your time, sharing with us about how courage and collaboration works. And as I keep saying to everybody, be driven by design.